So let me give you all a chance to just raise any questions that you might have that came to your mind. I know one of the things when I first really thought about this paradigm, especially thinking about where people are at in terms of their spiritual growth, to like really be in a position to say, okay, here's where somebody's at spiritually and to make the decision like in my small group or with my elders, I'm going to ask those questions. Where where are we really at? You know? And uh, we went through a thing a few years ago. We had elders and deacons, and most of them were just adults. They weren't parents, spiritual parents. And to really look at that and say, okay, um, this is really helpful. Um, you can feel at times like, okay, am I like, is this being judgmental? And how does that all work? But it's really not because it's just if you're really caring about people, you need to know where people are at to help them get to that next step. And if you don't ask those questions then are you really taking care of them? Because God's goal is that they would grow to spiritual maturity. So then I need to be at a position where I'm assessing where they're at and then helping them to get to that next level. And I can tell you that less than 1%, I think, of church leaders really think that way. So it's a real blessing to be able to wrap your mind around that concept and then start doing it. So let me just see if we have any questions that uh, you all have. Yes, Ron Fraser. The question is, what's the next step for a, a parent? There, there, there I am. Am I there? Uh, here's what one of the things that we say for parents is parents learn to feed themselves. How many of you have ever heard people say, well, I'm just not being fed? I always tell them the last time I needed to be fed, I was three years old. Your job, the reason they need to be fed is because they're starving. They're not feeding themselves so that when they come to church, it's like they're, they're ravenous. But if they're feeding themselves spiritually every day, then, yeah, they like what you have to say and it helps, and, and, but they're, they're spiritually fed. They're not starving to death. Um, and so what we teach them to do is to feed themselves, and they become my co laborer some people have the, the idea that they're a disciple, uh, you know, they need to be discipled the rest of their life, and they go around, disciple me, disciple me, disciple me. No. Uh, Jesus didn't say, now that I'm leaving, go and find somebody else to disciple you. He said, now go and make disciples. You're going to walk with me. You're going to know me. You're going to be co-laborers. So what I try to do is invite people into a co-laborer relationship where we're of equal value. We've always been of equal value. Whether you're an de- infant, child, young adult, you don't become more valuable. You become more usable to the kingdom. But we're all of equal value. For instance, uh, who's the most precious to Jesus? Adults or, chil- or infants? Children. Children are. But yet, they're not, uh, they're not as usable for the kingdom as an adult is. But they're precious. Infants in Christ are precious to the Lord. But as they grow up, uh, they become more usable for the service of the Lord and for the mission. As they get older and their gift set steps steps in and they start to be used, whether it's uh, leading a small group or women's ministry or children's ministry or home groups or a pastor, you're all of equal value. You just have different jobs on the team. And so what we, we do is we say we're inviting you into a co-laborer relationship. 
You have your job, I have my job. Together we do our job so that our team wins. So, um, you know, oftentimes our people don't understand. I had a guy, this happened, I actually wrote about it in the book, uh, the new book, where I, I uh, talked about this guy came up to me who had been being discipled by one of our guys and said, Jim, they, uh, they kind of said I was ready to be, you know, I was ready to serve, and so would you disciple me now? And I said, well, I thought you were being discipled by him, and he said you were, well, I know I need to be discipled by somebody all the time. Well, what do you mean by that? Do, do I need to be coachable and be continue to be teach, taught by people that are mature in ways that maybe I'm not? Absolutely. I got a 19-year-old son that I don't know what to do with. There's some of you who have had a 19-year-old son already that you did not know what to do with, and you have wisdom and maturity in some ways that I do not have. I am not the anointed one that has everything figured out in my church. We are co-laborers. You have wisdom that I do not have. I may have wisdom that you do not have. We have different positions and jobs. We're of equal value. Do you see what I'm saying? We pray for one another. We help one another. I got senior pastors that won't take advice from their associate pastors. I, I see that all the time. That are you kidding me? Do you really think you're more mature than them because you're the senior pastor and they're the, you're the, they're the associate pastor? Because you have one skill set and they have a different one. You're better than they are and you don't have to listen to them. Are you crazy? What are you thinking? So we're inviting them into a co-labor relationship. Where now we do it together. We both take our parts of the uh, positions on the team and we play them well. What's the best move for a congregation that has tried maybe or at least few models in terms of disciple making? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, for example, in our situation, our congregation is a six year old congregation and we have tried at least two or three models. We have not learned yet and have not perfected, but it seems like uh, this model really excites us, as I have other four guys here that are here with me. Well, I think one of the things that we do is is we're always we're trying to find an easy way to get immature people to grow up, and there is no easy way. We're trying to find an easy way to get people to work together and to love each other. There is no easy way. Those are supernatural things. Those are God things, and they're a lot of hard work. So we've kind of got to get it out of it. You know, disappointment comes from unmet expectations. If, if you have expectations that are unrealistic, then you're, you're going to be disappointed. It is a lot of work. It is a calling to be a pastor in whatever setting that you're in. And so it's to choose a model that's biblical and then stick with it. And when it doesn't go right, fix it. The way I view it, uh, the way I view it is it's like a, from where I live, uh, you've got to take I-90 to get to Seattle. That's the only road you can take. So you've got to take that road. Now, you can be in the ditch. You can be on the rumble strips. But if you want to get to Seattle, you've got to be on I-90. It's the same way for us. I think we've, we've, we're on the right road, but sometimes we're in the ditch. We can see the road. Sometimes we've slowed down and stopped right in the middle. Sometimes we've actually gone in reverse, but that's the right road. That's why I'm saying 
If you're looking for an easy way to get everybody on the same page, it's not going to happen. There is no easy way. Um, you're going to have to say, this is what we're about and work. That's why I remember yesterday I said first, is this okay? Is this okay? And then let's go do. With your team, the first thing is always, are we on the same page? Are we in alignment? It's always the team first. Before you reach out to anyone, you've got to make sure the team is um, on the same page. This is what we're about. Now, what we're doing right there isn't working, but we're not changing the goal. And we're not, and we know what we know. We know that disciples are made in relationship. Maybe our small group leaders are teaching too much and not facilitating enough. Uh, which means our people are not learning very well. All right? It's still going to happen in small groups. We've just got to do a better job of training our leaders. You see what I'm saying? You're always tinkering. You're always working. You're always evaluating, going, oh, we're not doing that very well. You're never going to get to the place where you go, we got it figured out. You might have the, the location figured out, the right location, but that doesn't mean you're ever actually arriving. You're always working at it. So it's to choose a model, be absolutely committed to it, keep making sure that your people know you're not changing. You're not going to do it differently than this. This is how you're going to do it. You're getting everybody on board all the time, constantly. When people push back on us, we don't go, well, I wonder if God wants us to keep doing this. We go, nope, that person's pushing back on us. They either change or they go. Go ahead. equipping the saints and so on how do you see the the model working best using that kind of mindset of their you know different people and i might make this one comment which would mean i would really prefer personally that as i've been discipled to not just be discipled by the prophet alone because then i would probably grovel all the time so you know like i feel that many people have contributed to my own discipleship so how do you take that concept from Ephesians 4 and work it into this model? Well, Ephesians 4 is a model of leadership. It's not the same as a model of discipleship. What I mean by that is this. Everyone is called to be and make disciples. Not everyone is called to leadership in a church. Okay, so when I say everyone is called, some people go, well, if you're a disciple maker, you're a leader. Well, it's true. You are, everyone is called to leadership in some sense. For instance, if you're a spiritual, if you're a father and you have children, you're called to lead your family, right? But that doesn't mean that you're necessarily called to be an apostle in a church, however you might define that, a pastor, a teacher. So everyone is called to lead. Everyone can influence one person. Maybe it's just their wife. Maybe it's their children. Maybe it's a small group. So everyone's called to be a disciple maker, but there are levels of leadership skill sets that you need the higher up you go in the, in the leadership of an organization. So um, one of them is, let me give you an example. Remember that guy I told you about yesterday? And I don't know if you guys were here, but we had a guy in our church. His name is Bob. 
And I was talking to the church one day about, we had, had a home group that had baptized 11 people and they didn't tell us. So I was like, hey, you guys need to tell us when there's... Well, Bob comes up to me and he's really tearful. And he's like, you know, I'm sorry, Jim. We had 17 baptisms last year and I didn't tell you about them. And, and he was really broken. He's like an 80-year-old guy. He's just one of the most wonderful people you'll ever know in your life. Well, we made a mistake with Bob. Bob was a wonderful disciple maker and a wonderful small group leader. Well, one time we thought, well, you know what? We need to make him a coach because he will do a great job of creating small group leaders just like him. Disaster. He was a horrible coach. He was miserable and people were frustrated with him. So finally we had to go, Bob, listen, buddy, we know you've been trying. But you're a great small group leader. So thank you. Thank you. He was not a leader in the sense of an organizational leader. He was a great leader in a small group. But as far as working through other people and, and, and you know, de- de- developing strategy to reach an area and keep and make sure everybody's administra- or organizationally keeping role and doing all the things you need to do as a coach, mm, administration was not his thing and he frustrated everybody. So everybody can make disciples. Not everybody has been given the gifting of leadership. Does that make sense to you? Okay, so I think that was one of those questions. I don't know what the other one was. Ephesians 4.11, speaking of the leadership of a church. There are different positions on a church leadership that need to happen. And so it's speaking more in terms of the, the, the organizational leadership, eldership, giftings, those kinds of things within the the headship of an entire body more than we're talking about discipleship person to person. Just to follow up on that, uh, I think Kurt has a question. Um, And I'm sure there's other questions out here. Can you talk about um, how in a church organization, the more people you're responsible for, how um, more leadership skill is required? Yeah, when we're talking about leadership, coaching, all of those things, what are some of the things that a good coach will do when he looks at a week of practice? Cup, upcoming week of practice, what will he do? Analyze the other team he's getting ready to wrestle. They're strong in this. They traditionally teach this kind of thing. Okay, what else? He knows his team. Uh, I've got this wrestler who can probably not beat that kid, but if I bump him up weight and have my JV kid in there, I was going to lose that anyway, but I can win that weight. because So he's thinking strategically about that. All right, what else? What's that? Works on skills uh, where they're weak in, in those areas, okay? So he actually plans out his practice. He thinks about who they're wrestling, what they're doing, He thinks about, all right, which of my coaches are really talented in this area that we're going to be needed to have that talent? I'm going to have him do the main coaching this week. He may not be the big person in charge of everything, but he's going to set things up. He's going to organize it. We've got to have uh, weigh-ins at at 7 o'clock, which means I've got to have the scales here. I've got to have the referees there. I've got to have, there's some administration part of all of that. Got to let the parents know that, uh, you know, I've got to make sure the kids are staying on weight. They're working hard. I'm going to have enough coaches to break them into groups of 10 so I can actually have coaches coaching these kids instead of one coach for 55 kids this week. You, You see what I'm saying? There's a lot of planning and organization that goes into that. 
versus just showing up and doing what you're told or going, oh, well, you look sad. Let me come to talk to you or, or whatever. Or, or this week I'm just going to teach and whatever else happens, somebody else is going to take care of. No, when you're the head coach, there is gifting leadership or leadership giftings that you have to have to be able to see at 30,000 feet, not just at the 10-foot level. Now, you have to have people that see at the 10-foot level, but you actually have to see above that to get the right people in the right spots, or you have to be able to motivate your guys. I know that you're tired this week. I know we're going to make weight three times, which means your weight all week is going to be rough, but we can do this. You can do this every day. I'm proud of you. I want to inspire you. Hey, guys, you guys, every time I turn around, The coaches are telling me, you're not working hard. You're seniors. Come on up here and let's talk about this for a minute. You need to be the example for the team. You see what I'm saying? These are the kinds of things that coaches do on a day-in, day-out basis beyond just coming in and teaching the moves. Now, not everybody can think that way. So you put right people in right spots. This guy can handle 10 kids. And he'll really care about those 10 kids. That's the right guy for that spot. This guy can think about 40 kids. I can actually have him do something this week because I'm going to be gone this week to oversee this whole thing. And I'm going to raise him up. And you know what? Not only is he going to be my number one coach's assistant, but he might be the right guy for the new high school over here because uh, uh, I'm going to develop him to be able to be a great coach. Of his own, on his own right, because he's that gifted. Why would I want to hold him down? I want to release him to be all he can be. Examples of that in the church in terms of some specific things, in terms of coaching, as you're describing the leaders of the church. Try to think in terms of like when you were, say, three to five hundred in size. Okay. Uh, when I, we were three to five hundred in size, I every person that came to our church, if they missed service on a weekend, we'd call every single one. How are you doing? Are you okay? Uh, we would call every visitor on the phone. Hey, thanks for coming. Would you like to sit down and talk about where you're at with God? Every single, in fact, we did it till we were a thousand. I would make, even well to this day, I make eighty phone calls a week, on an average. Somewhere around 80. How are you doing? Haven't seen you. Are you okay? You had to think about all the things that needed to happen with the church. There's going to be a lot of people that go to the hospital this week. What about them? There's going to be, uh, there's going to be, we got a small group system. At that time, when we were first starting out, we had like uh, 15 small groups. 12 small groups was the first real big launch of small groups. 12 small groups. Got to have curriculum. Got to be training these leaders. Got to have job descriptions for these leaders. Got to be encouraging these leaders because they're going to be encouraging their people, which means they're going to get drained. They have a regular job. They have a family, and now they're going to be actually pastoring these small groups. So I've got to encourage them and keep ministering to them. I can't just expect water to be pouring out and nothing to be pouring in. So I've got to keep encouraging them. Now, as you start to outline all the different things that need to happen in this church, plus I've got to have a worship service, children's ministry. I've got to have a sermon this next week. So I've got a small group system, a children's ministry. We've got to call all the missing. got to call those who are new. Got to, as you start to line out all these things, what kind of week am I going to have if I'm thinking in terms of me doing it? My wife will kill me. Right? So now, here's the deal. I could go, well, I'm just not going to do that. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to preach my sermons. 
What would be the result of that? Not going to call any of them missing. But if I say to people, listen, this is what I need you to do. We've got to do this together. I need, God has gifted you. Well, I don't know how to do that. It's okay. Say, I don't know. I'm going to help you do it. I'm not going to throw you in the deep end of the pool and make you come up with some ugly stroke that keeps you alive. We're going to actually teach you how to swim. So we're going to do this together. And I start lining this out and start developing. Remember, it's not my job to care for all these people. I've got to create a leadership structure that helps that to be possible. So I start thinking in terms of what giftings do I have here? What typically pastors do is they go, Who, where can I go hire somebody to do this stuff? Problem is, most churches don't have the money to hire. So within this structure, are the coaches, are they also leaders of their own small groups? Like you mentioned that you also have your own small group. So are all of these coaches, are they members of their own small group or their small group? Okay. So the question is, um, I'm just kind of wondering about the roles of these coaches, um, whether they have themselves a small group that they continue to be involved with, or if their small group becomes the small group leaders that they are overseeing. Okay. Community pastor, paid. Coaches, volunteer. Small group leaders, This job is to minister to his small group leaders. He'll go and attend each of their small groups once a month in the evening. He'll have a, a, like every other week, 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. breakfast with these leaders. How are you doing? How's your walk with God? How's your family? Let's pray together. Let's talk together. He's investing in them. It's not all training. You don't just go to training. It's relational. How is your walk with God? Where are you at? What do we need to do with you? You're struggling in your marriage right now. You just lost your job. All right, here's what you're going to do. We're not going to. We're going to bring your apprentice in, and I'm going to come and lead that group, and we're going to send you and your wife to a, to a cabin for a couple of days. You're not going to. You're not going to lead for a little while. You're not in that. That. It's like when you got a football player that's got a concussion and wants to go back out on the field. What's your responsibility? Right? You're caring for his needs. Now, what happens if you don't care? How long will that guy stick around and be a part of what you're doing? He'll burn out. Do you know how many times over the years I've had to go into staff, pastors, and say, here's here's the counselor that I go to with my wife. You're going to start going to him. I'm going to pay, the church is going to pay for it. And you're going to take a week off. I know you don't have the vacation time. You're going to take a week off and you're going to go spend time with your wife. And if I see you or I hear that you're working in that week because I'm talking to your wife, you and I are going to have a problem. I'm okay. I'm okay. No, you're not. And even if you are, uh, good. How can I go wrong by doing this? But then the coach's small group is in fact the... Uh... This guy... This guy meets with his guys. That's his small group. That's his small group. And what happens here is they meet during one of the services. We want them to meet during times that do not compete with ministry and their family. If you keep having them to go to two ministry nights a week, 
how do they actually pastor their people? How much time does it take to pastor these four small group leaders and care about them and minister to them? Right? Well, it takes time. And some weeks it may be no big deal. Everybody's fine. But some week he lost his job. His mother-in-law's got cancer. See, sometimes what we do is we elevate our leaders past the need to be relational anymore. We, we, can just, we can count on them. We don't have to care for them. We don't have to minister to them. No. You should get more care as you step into ministry, not less. And as you care for them, they will actually do a better job as you model care for them. Who will actually model care for them. Where did they learn that? From here. Where did they learn that? From here, where did they learn that? Do you see what I'm saying? And so these people are caring for each other. This guy meets, uh, one of our small uh, coaches meets with his guys on Sunday morning during the 8.30 service. Why? There's child care available. They're already there on Sunday morning. Right? Some of them meet at 6 a.m. in the morning. Some of them, one time a month, they, they get together with all the wives and everybody and they have a barbecue and they eat together. The, 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 the community pastor's wife meets with the women during that 8, eight o'clock in the morning. So the wives are being invested in. They're a part of it. The husbands are meeting over here. You see what I'm saying? Then once a month they do. You're investing in your people. How do you go wrong when you're investing in your people making disciples? How does that happen? That's the church. This is a building. And that works, this works in Canada, in Africa, everywhere. Why? Don't tell me Canadians don't want to be cared for and ministered to and invested in. (laughs) This is human, biblical love. That works everywhere. My question is, uh, basic. Uh, I'm assuming there's two basic motivations that fuel churches of all kinds. There's guilt motivation, and there's sort of grace or gospel motivation, which is, I would say, the right motivation. Uh, sort of when a person becomes a Christian, they're, you can, they're a true Christian because their, their heart's imagination has been captured by what Christ has done for them on the cross and his resurrection, that whole deal. Uh, how do you, how do I, let's say my church uh, takes hold of this model, how do we prevent ourselves from being motivated by guilt? Because it is possible probably you could take anything and let that be the motivator, but ensure that Christ remains front and center. Uh, I think that balance is there. We've developed, we have balance, the, the, the ability to to feel imbalance and respond in balance naturally um, because we get it unbalanced. You're going to get it out of balance in that way. You are. Well, and, and Paul used guilt. Not all the time, but didn't he say you ought to be grown-ups by now? But this is what you are? I agree, but that's my, I guess my, my thing is I've seen a lot of churches or different stripes of even evangelical churches that go the wrong way. Oh, yeah. It's, it happens. Yeah, you got it. You got it. You got it. And you do it yourself. 
I mean, there's times where I do what I do because I'm feeling guilty, and sometimes I'm doing it out of the joy of the Lord. And I have to go, why am I doing this, and what am I doing? And just as you check yourself a lot, you've got to check your church a lot. You've got to go and say, why are you doing this? What's going on with you? But, but uh, the truth of the matter is, there, there's, a, there's a Christianity that Jesus designed that's fulfilling, that gives water to the soul, that causes growth in your life, I mean, it, that, that is attractive to the world. The kind of Christianity that we've formed, that's been handed down to us and we've perpetuated, is an unfulfilling form of Christianity. It doesn't even keep our own people, let alone attract those outside of our group. They're more spiritual than ever. They're looking for answers. They just don't think they'll find answers in here. And quite frankly, they're not even being invited to come in here. So when people start feeling loved and cared about and they're reminded of the mission and um, they're participating in something and it's their cause and they're a part of it and it it does something to your soul. It becomes real to you. And if we're not offering them that, now we can't make them do it. I mean, even in the early church, Paul offered that to them, and he would write, you know, these people left me because they loved the world more than they loved God, and he had people that deserted him, and we'll have that too. Even though we offer them life, some people will choose death. But we have to offer them life. We're not even offering them life. We're offering them boredom sitting in a chair in a church. If we offer them real life and they turn away from it, fine. Then I can say, I am... I, I, I don't feel guilty. I don't feel bad. I'm, my conscience is clear, as Paul said. The blood of all men, I, 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 it's not on me. Paul said that. But if I'm not offering them real life and they reject Christ, they rejected the wrong Jesus that we showed them. And that's, I, I just don't want to do that. What does the Bible say about being the church and how was it modeled in the book of Acts? And when we compare that, to what we've got, do we find that we're wrong? And is it okay to be wrong? I'm kind of used to it by now, being wrong. Jim, why don't you uh, go ahead and walk through some of the stuff you've diagrammed there? Okay. Just as review, there are three keys that we talked about today to disciple making. Do you remember what they were? Number one is an intentional what? Intentional leader. Number two is a relational environment. Is that true? Are those two things true? Do you see that scripturally, by the way? When Jesus said, go and make disciples, was he saying, go haphazardly, kind of wander all around, not really know what you're doing, don't be intentional about it? Or did they actually know what they were doing, and had they, did they have a bottle they could use, and did they have a plan? Right? They did, right? So to say it, you need an intentional leader, not to say that you can't learn from somebody who's not intentional. I can't tell you how many times I've been with people and watched them do something and went, why'd you do that? Well, I did it because of this. Why didn't you ever tell me that before? That's pretty smart. Well, they didn't tell me because they didn't think to tell me because they're not very intentional. They're just busy doing it. And they're not thinking about training me to do it. 
right? Have you ever taken somebody with you to the hospital and you're, you never thought to debrief them afterwards and you just did all this stuff and expected them to watch you and know why you did what you did? When I, when I go to the hospital, it's like I want to stay for just a few minutes. Why do I want to stay for just a few minutes? Well, because their family's there. They're in the hospital. Unless they ask me to stay longer, I'm going to just visit, tell them I love them, pray with them, I'm going to go. Well, shouldn't I tell the guy, that I, why did I just stay for a few minutes? Why did, I, why did I do what I did? What did you see me do? Why did I do what I did? We take somebody with us, but then we don't tell them anything that we did and why we did it. And we expect them just to get it. Takes an intentional leader if you want it to be reproducible. Secondly, it takes a relational environment. Like that, that car ride to the hospital with your guys. All right, that's a relational environment. Now I can say, how's your walk with God? What's going on with you? We're not just about doing this task and let's put on a face and go talk to so-and-so because they're angry or such-and-such because they're sick. How are you doing? Tell me about your life. What's going on with you? What are you reading in the scriptures right now? What questions do you have? Here's my life. Here's what I'm struggling about. Here's what I'm ticked off about. Let me, let's, let's pray together. It's about not just investing in them, but allowing them to be a part of you. They won't be authentic with somebody else if you're not authentic with them. And without authenticity, you're not creating the right culture for discipleship. So there's intentional leader, a relational environment, and then there's a reproducible process. Meaning, when I start, I actually have a plan. When I go to Seattle, I know that it's going to take about five and a half hours I know that there are four quarters to the trip. I know how much gas it's going to take. You know, I know uh, it's the same thing. When I share Christ with somebody, I know the job's not done when they pray the prayer with me. Church Christ people go, no, they need to go to the baptismal. All right? So now the job's done. Right? What is the job? I've got to make a disciple. In the end, the job's not done until they're trained up and released to go and make disciples. So how, what's the process that we're going to go through on that? What's that look like? What's my plan? Now, when I give them the plan, when I go to Seattle, I want, and my son's with me, do I want my son to be able to know how to get to Seattle and what it's going to take to get to Seattle? That he ought to change his oil before we go, that he checks the gas, that he... He knows how many miles the car gets on a tank, that he knows the directions and how to get there, that he knows what to do when he gets there. Do I want my son to know those kind of things? Do I want somebody who's a Christian who's getting saved to understand what it means to walk with Jesus and what it means to raise their family to know the Lord and what it means to, to fight with their wife and fight fair so that there's actually a relationship when you're done? And do you see what I'm saying? What do I want that to look like? Okay, having said that, once again, I want to reiterate, this is what's going to happen. In the book, I wrote about this guy named Corey. And Corey, one day, we have this family, uh, he, he was divorced. He had an affair many, many years ago. And he became a Christian and won his wife back. So he has a passion for people who have had affairs and get, helping them get back together. So he started a small group. 
He went through our system, was an apprentice in a small group, was a small group leader, came to us one day and said, you know what my passion is, Jim? My passion is to help families who have dealt with with, um, uh, adultery restore their relationship. Hmm, sounds like a leader. Doesn't it sound like a leader to you? You know what he is? He's a butcher. So he started this this, this, uh, uh, small group. And he has uh, six families in it. And one of these families is he's invested in him. He's cared about him. He's done everything. And she's just having none of it. She will not forgive. Uh, and the marriage is almost over. And he makes an appointment with me. He actually sees me in the four-year church, and he's down. I go, what's the matter? He goes, oh, I blew it. I totally blew it. You blew it. Yeah, I mean, I got this family in my small group. That's, they're going to get divorced, and I... I said, well, come in and see me. So he comes in and sees me. And I said, so let me, let me get this straight. You had an affair. Your wife forgave you because of the way you responded. And she had a choice too. And you, you, I said, who walked beside you all those years ago? He goes, nobody. That's why I wanted to do this ministry. I mean, I was kind of on my own. And I had to just fight through all this. And I didn't know what to do. And I just read all these books and... And I go, so you had nobody to help you, and yet God helped you, and, and now here you are uh, helping other people. He said, yeah. I said, so tell me all the things you've done. Well, I've had them over to dinner. I've gone to their house. I meet with them every Wednesday morning. Uh, my wife meets with his wife. You know, and I said, well, what you said to me was you blew it. Tell me how you blew it. Well, they're getting a divorce. So what you're saying is, if you'd have just done it right, their marriage would have been saved. You know, are they going to... Do we actually fall into that too, by the way? Have you ever had somebody that you really invested in and they walked away and you just felt like you totally messed it up? Whenever somebody gets in ministry, that is a real possibility. In fact, as they get into ministry and they start to serve, they're going to face a lot of those same things that only pastors have faced. And so you have to teach God's part, my part, their part. God is always working to this very hour he's working. Is the Holy Spirit working in the life of a Christian? Is the Holy Spirit working on a lost person? He's not in them, he's on them. Drawing them in a a Christian. So whether you're there or you're not there, is the Holy Spirit there? Do they have the Word of God? You are going to do your part. Can you do God's part, by the way? Can you be the Holy Spirit to them, follow them around at work, speak in their heart all the time, text them 24 hours a day, whispering in their ear through the radio station? Can you do any of that? You can't do God's part, right? You can only do your part. And you can't do their part. You can invest in them and care for them and minister to them, but they have to decide to open the door of their own heart and respond to Jesus. Don't they have to do that? So I went through all this stuff with him. He was feeling like a failure when he had done more for this guy than anybody had ever done for him, and he made it. He was investing in this person's life, and it wasn't working out. So was it his fault? No. When you start to allow people to serve and to minister, your problems change. As they serve, remember Paul 
raised up Timothy. What kinds of things did Paul have to say to Timothy, his disciple, in the book of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy? What kind of struggles was he having that Paul needed to really encourage him about? Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. Say it again. Take a little wine for your stomach because people will make you want to drink. Um. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. He invested in him, didn't he? We cannot throw people in the deep end of the pool and expect that as they get into ministry, they have all these expectations. I had these staff members, they always come in and they go, man, I had no idea. When I was a volunteer, I thought, oh, it'll be just so great to serve God full time. And, you know, when I was a volunteer, everybody appreciated me when I would do stuff and thank you. And now it's like, well, you didn't do it right. You did this wrong. You did that wrong. And this is a completely different game. And what if I just threw them into ministry? So so many of these Bible college kids, they're taught about ministry. And then they're thrown into some World War III zone, you know, a church that would hire a 22-year-old person out of Bible college is already desperate. Because what 22-year-old kid has any life experience to deal with a bunch of grown-ups who can't get along? You know? And so now they got nobody. Nobody's encouraging them and everybody's expecting. No, when you set these guys into that ministry position, there's God's part, my part, their part. And to help them understand, I can only do my part and I can love them and grieve because they're, they're falling away, but I'm not going to blame myself because the accuser of the brethren will tell you in your ear, you're no good, you didn't do it right. But why aren't you any good? Because they didn't accept it. Did Paul think he wasn't any good when he went into a town and they wouldn't listen to anything that he said? When Jesus sent the disciples into a town and said, hey, listen, when you go into a town, uh, stay with somebody who's there and let, their, let your peace rest on them, but if they won't listen to you, it's your fault. Is that what he said? No, he said, Take, kick the dust off your shoes and it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. There's God's part, my part, their part. Not to say that we can't learn to do our part better, but helping young believers step out into faith knowing that their go- failure is a part of it. Not because they didn't do it right, but because some people do not want to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they do not want to respond. They want to be affirmed in their actions rather than confronted in their sin. Yeah, yeah. Jesus was a failure by all of our models. At the end of his three years, he had twelve, and one of them betrayed. Well, they all ran. They were all chicken. They all betrayed him. One committed suicide. That's right. What I always tell parents who have kids that fail is, uh, you know, the greatest father in history, God, in the garden lost his children because they chose to sin. Not to say uh, we're anything like God when we have kids that fail because we make mistakes too. But that stupid little thing called free will, unless you're a Calvinist and then nobody really has that. But uh, I'm an Arminian. And that stupid little thing called free will is a major problem. God didn't take away free will when we became Christians. No. Nope. 
So here's what I'm saying to you. Our job is to raise up. Have you, have, I know I keep saying the same things. I'm one of like that one, I got a little drum and one thing, and I just still keep beating it to death, okay? Because I'm proof that a simple-minded, not-too-talented person doing it Jesus' way can have something happen. Just do it Jesus' way. I'm not smart, to, smart enough to think of my own stuff. I steal it all. Just do it that way. Do what he says. Question the box that you were handed and ask yourself the question, is this biblical? And then do it Jesus' way. Not just in doctrine, but in methodology. Do you recommend that people really only participate with one small one? Well, we have, I have actually multiple small groups. For instance, we have a home group that I go to because my wife really needs to be involved. But out of that home group, the men in that group meet at 6 o'clock in the morning, 7 now, thank goodness, uh, before they go to work during the midweek. And it's more of an accountability group. A home group is a mixed sort of a thing. The men's group, you can't talk about something as men in front of our wives and other people's wives, and you shouldn't. So... Discipleship even goes deeper when you break into those two different groups. Sure. Uh, but yeah, I don't want them to lead more than one uh, because what is entailed in leading is more than just doing a lesson. It's how are you doing. It's uh, where's your walk with God. Any other questions I can answer for you? Henry. Yeah, thanks. Uh, since you're like, you've gone to more of a geographic like way to do it. When people want to start a specialized ministry like the Butcher, or with so many first-time guests coming in, or they've already got a relationship with somebody, I mean, is that how do you address that? Because a lot of them will say, "I want to go with this person." Yeah, and you know what? We're not legalistic in that way. What typically will happen is they will go, let's say that they live 20 miles away, but, but they were invited by their co-worker who lives over here. They will go to that small group. But as they get discipled and as they grow up, at some point they actually go back to their own community and their small groups there. And then with the specialized small groups, you have a lot of those? Or? Um, what we typically happens in the specialized is, for instance, Corey lives in the Rathrum area, and he really had a calling to do this. So we gave him people in the Rathrum area that were dealing with the same issue. Now, if he just said, I got this other guy over here, we just said, great. I mean, we're not, once again, we, we, if, we're going to typically go towards the geographic area and work within the system we've built, but it's not a legalistic thing. If, if Corey at Safeway, where he works, um, decided that he was, he's got families from all over that work there, three of them uh, are... Um, dealing with adultery right there, right then, and he wants to have a small group on Wednesday nights right there, right then, praise God, go ahead. You, you know what I'm saying? Jim, would they do orality in that group? Or? Probably not. Uh, our, we're going to talk about orality tonight, storytelling tonight, but storytelling is something we typically do in our home groups. The, we have men's ministry curriculum called... Um, uh, well, my mind just went blank. We just developed it this last year. Battle cry is what it's called for men. 
the women will do different things. The recovery group will, some of them are doing boundaries. Some people do experiencing God, although if they do, it, we don't allow closed groups like experiencing God in the home group system because we want to be able to invite people and it's a closed group. Whereas in the men's group, we very well might have for the next 12 weeks, we're going to do experiencing God and it'll just be these four guys that I'm going to do it with. So, Jim, if guys are in those specialized groups, do you expect them to also be in a home group? We would like them to be because their wives need to be involved in growing too and getting to know other people too. The best thing a man can do is put his wife around godly women to give godly advice instead of ungodly women who give ungodly advice. Because when I mess up, I want the ladies around me going, I know he's an idiot, but do what's right. I don't want them encouraging my wife to do something stupid. Same for the people in our church. So for you guys, the home groups are kind of your um, mainstay. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they supplement. But the real thing that you focus on is the home groups, not the specialized groups. Well, if it's a mixed group, it's a home group. We've got singles groups, young adult groups. Every ministry in our church, high school, junior high, even little kids, is in small groups. But uh, the home group system is typically a mixed group, males and females of all ages. In other words, we don't like taking the seniors and pulling them out of group to have an affinity group with other seniors because... That robs those younger people of the wisdom that those older folks will give them. And in this generation, our kids want grandparents. They just don't have them because of the split homes and the nuclear family all over the world, all over America. They love that. And so, plus the seniors get to be used by God as grandparents in those small groups, you know, and as parents helping these younger marriages and younger women and younger men know what it looks like to actually be married for 40 years. Because our generation, that's unheard. That, that's never going to have happened for very few. The older generation actually meant what they said when they said, I do. Even, even non-Christians are, are better at staying married than, than our generation is. Could you flesh out what it looked like for the older gentleman, like the 84-year-old or whoever he was, um, that uh, brought, baptized 17 people that one year? 17, yeah. Move in and out of his group in that process well what he did is he branched the group which is why we thought about making him a coach we thought well we'll branch this group because he did a great job with his apprentice and now there's two groups and he'd go back and forth you know and and be kind of like the father. He's retired, so he could be like the, the older grandfatherly dude. So we thought, well, we'll just put him... Well, no, as, as soon as we put him... As long as he was working with that apprentice and loving on him and letting him lead that group, that was fine. As soon as he had to be over and do, take, take care of the administrative stuff, he even frustrated his own, his own people. So he branched the groups. He, they got saved. He, he had a group way too big. All the time, he always has a group way too big because he's the most invitinous old geezer you'll ever see in your entire life. He's always inviting people and praying for people and just craziness. I think he's got, he even went so far as to have four small groups as a retired guy that he was directly leading. But when you, you know, 
He'd come to us and go, hey, I got this young guy I think could be a great coach. He does a great job of that still to this day. I got this young guy. He's a great small group leader, and he could take these people. And He started more small groups, so that's kind of how he's doing it. In our church, the coach's role really is that's the lifeline between the church and the small group, all the information. There's a lot of some technical things that go into that job. Well, he is so relational. He would forget to do announcements because he'd see somebody hurting and He'd go over and pray for him, and then he'd get everybody over. Let's all pray for him, you know, and let's talk, and, and let's go to the Word. This is what the Word says, you know, and and then uh, they'd all do, you know, and he was just amazing. But he would have forgot the announcements, never taken roll, you know, never. <laughs> he didn't, he's a crazy old guy. I just love him. Yeah. Uh, just talking about where we are here in, in Calgary, Mary. A number of our elders are here. A number of our elders here at Maryvale. Uh, a number of our elders are, are, are here this weekend. Mm-hmm. A number of our elders are also uh, uh, group leaders and apprenticing as, as uh, apprentice in the groups. The day is here. We've been to Post Falls two or three times. We've been at this for a couple of years. The day is here. Yes, uh, Sunday, uh, all the group leaders were up on the stage, mm-hmm. okay? We're, it's here, folks. We're doing it. And right now, probably through some of our minds, I don't think I'm ready for this. You're probably not. That's right. Okay, thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad you said that because... I, I'm not ready for it. We're no. kicking off this next week too. And I'm like, oh boy, what's this going to mean? I have no idea. That's right. So my encouragement, and I'm one of those too, but my encouragement is we are as ready as we're going to be given what we've done here and now today. Mm-hmm. God's, God's there with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, John Coughlin is, is the best one to say it because he's always harping on this, God's going to do his part, I'll do my part, and everybody has to do their part. Mm-hmm. So we are as ready as we're ever going to be to start right And I, now. I would encourage you to do this. It's scary, yes, to, um, to do small groups and to start investing in caring and calling on people and doing all those things that you're, you're, you're expected to do. But don't just make this an internally focused small group event. The goal is that I'm going to share my faith out there too. Yes, I'm going to step out courageously in our own church, but I'm also going to step out courageously in my work. I'm going to say, you know what? Because as you grow, you're, you're looking to see where God is working all around you and you're joining him. You're, you're, it's not just an internally focused, hey, get everybody on board in the church. You've got to model sharing your faith with lost people. I mean, uh, one of the sad things we do is we do this assessment. And very few churches are having baptisms. And they're in decline, big time. Uh, I've been working a lot with the Southern Baptist, largest convention or largest denomination in the world. And they're freaked out because it's the first time in their history they're in sharp decline. They got... Big trouble. And, uh, you know, I work with Christian churches, and they'll come in and go, you know, we, we didn't have one baptism last year. You know. And I'll, I'll ask this question. Have you ever... We, my dad just did this. He goes around and assesses churches around the country. And he, <laughs> Have you ever won somebody to the Lord? I mean, your people are going to model you. Have you, outside of inviting them to come forward on a Sunday morning, actually stepped out and won your neighbor to the Lord, brought them to your small group? As the head goes, the body follows. Not just in preaching, 
me standing up here preaching, where is your place to, to, you know, the sports that you're involved in, the things you're involved in outside? Don't expect your people to, to have the courage to do something that you're not actively participating in. I mean, here's the truth. You by yourself should have had decisions in your town this last year. The senior pastor himself should have won some people to the Lord this last year outside of the context of his church. How can there be no, not one decision for Christ in a church? How can that be? The elders themselves should have won somebody to the Lord. Well, if, everybody, if you can tell me every person you shared with every week for the whole year said no when you said, do you know Jesus? Let me tell you about what Jesus has done in my life. I'm going to go, wow. But I doubt very seriously if that's true. We're going to uh, take a break in just a second. I wanted to interject with sort of a practical next step thing for you. Uh, and then when we come back, Jim, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the workbook, if you would, when we come back, just in terms of it. Thank you for being obedient. Chris, would you put the slide up, if you could, for us? Um, so having gone through a lot of the, these principles with church planters, uh, this is a, a brief teaching that I take them through, and we can get you guys a copy of this if you'd like it. But, okay, so you've... I think that you've heard a lot about uh, relational discipleship. You've heard a lot about alignment. Uh, you've heard a lot of these concepts. For a lot of people, it's, okay, what's the next step? And right now, I'm probably focusing more on those of you who are senior leaders. Uh, but it, it really, it's anybody um, who really buys into this stuff. Let me ask you, if you raise your hand, how many of you are buying into this stuff? Yeah. So let me just kind of describe a path that we walk through. I call this, yeah, advanced small groups. If you go to the next slide, Chris. Um, The first thing that I think is really important, and it goes back to what Jim just said, uh, as the head goes, the body follows. Uh, We always always have this saying. I actually learned it here. Um, You can't lead where you don't go. You can't teach what you don't know. And you can't give what you can't show. So the first thing we have to say is create the first small group with the primary goal of creating the DNA for all future groups. One of the things that uh, I've decided is that um, me personally, I've, I've always been in small groups and had small groups, but there's been some things that I've become more aware of lately. Uh, Jim came to Nashville and uh, we spent some time together and one of the things he confronted me with is being more transparent. Like, I'm pretty transparent in preaching that, but being more transparent, like, relationally, like, completely transparent. Because if I'm not, then my staff won't be, and the elders won't be, and the church won't be. And so with my small group right now, we're really trying to live this out. And what I've decided is I'm, I'm going to lead the church. We have a lot of people in our church who have bought into this. We have a guy from Jim's staff who's our small groups guy. Jim blessed him to come and join us. And uh, so I, you know, I'm just feeling so good about it, but I just want to live it out. So I have made a decision, and that decision is in my small group, I'm going to live this out no matter what. And so I would just encourage you to say, okay, I'm going to lead a small group, and I'm going to live this out. I would encourage all of you to read 
Jim's book, and we'll talk about the workbook helping you to do that, but just make that first decision. Notice I've said the primary goal is creating the DNA. So I'm working really hard with my apprentice and my whole small group. That which is intentional is that which is reproducible. So we, we're talking about it all the time, what we're doing and why we're doing it. Next slide. Uh, here's how I look at it, and I would suggest to all of you, you are the DNA embodied, the DNA teacher, and the DNA keeper. It is so easy to have vision drift and to drift from alignment. So my job, and in our church, our, our elders and, and our staff, we've all decided the most important thing for us to focus on throughout the rest of this year is alignment. We want to be the DNA. So as you go back, you've got to say in your small group that you will fight not to drift. If somebody wants to take the small group in another direction, you're not going to do that because you are the DNA embodied. You live it out. You teach it, and you keep it, and you guard it. Next step. Here's the things that, that I think are really key just in terms of summing it up. Uh, you will show the DNA is about intentional love. Uh, the expression intentional love is the word we use for agape love in the Bible. Because when you say love, people think that it's a feeling. So we, we just use the expression intentional love. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to do the right thing by you. I'm going to lay my life down for you. So we say that's got to be the foundation. Intentional love. Genuine intentional love creates the environment for the other things. By the way, when my kids were growing up, uh, we really saw this with our kids. Sometimes we'd have to do, deal with kids over hard things. And if we hadn't invested in them relationally, like the relationship with the, kid was, the kids was a little bit distant, we knew that was not a good time to deal with the hard things, right? Everybody parenting agree with that? But the more we were like really invested in them, then we could talk to them about the hard things. Uh, we, could, you know, we could guide them. They were so much more supple when they'd been totally invested in. And so Cindy and I would regularly do We had family night every week, and we would fight everybody in the world to make sure we were that relationally invested with the kids and having fun. That's intentional love. It's the same thing, intentional love with the people in your group. Then secondly, intentional discipleship. Uh, which Jim's been talking about, the use of the discipleship phases. So it's not just love for love's sake. That's the mistake that I've made for many years in small groups. It's not just about relationships and friendships and support and prayer. Primary purpose is discipleship. And then the third phase is intentional multiplication. Uh, you praise branching and reproduction from the very beginning. So with the, the uh, group, our, our current small group, we told them from the very beginning, we're going to build this up and branch it. And uh, so as they're coming in, you know, and you have people who are infants or babes in Christ, you, you know, when they start bringing that up, we, they already know we're going to branch. We're, we're planning to branch in December. Um, and so it's built that way from the very beginning. The next next slide. Oh, uh, Carl George, uh, the model of small group system that Jim is describing, Carl George's book, uh, uh, the Coming Church Revolution describes it. His second chapter in there, by the way, is something you might want to photocopy the second chapter out of that book because it talks about raising up apprentices. He says the central leadership task of the church after hearing from God is to develop leaders. I would say the central task is to disciple, hear from God, disciple people, and if your discipleship is being done right, you're going to raise up leaders. No, I'm getting a drink.
You're, you're, doing you're great. not allowed to. You're doing great. <laughs> Next slide. And again, I'll just do this really quickly. Let me let me um, recommend another resource to you, since I'm sort of God's wired me that way. Dave and John Ferguson wrote a book called Exponential, and the whole book is about this process. Uh, the book is worth it just for that, in terms of multiplying small group leaders. We've taught our staff that their their job is to multiply, to disciple and multiply leaders. It's not to minister to people, because if they're discipling and multiplying leaders, those leaders will minister to the people. If the staff is ministering to the people, that's not Ephesians 4. It's not a reproduction thing. It's what Jim said, the second model. Okay, so here's the process again. Just go through. I do, you watch, we discuss. We'll go through these quick, Chris. You do, I do, you help, we discuss. Thirdly, you do, I help, we discuss. Fourthly, you do, I watch, we discuss. And then fifthly, you and I both do it again with someone else. Okay, and then the last slide. Um, Jim's already talked a little bit about this, but you've got the lead pastor minister. He should have coaches and coaches taking taking care of the small groups. Let me just say this. In a church, if you have a church and you're a leader or an elder of a church and you have small group leaders who are not being taken care of every week, you're setting yourself up for failure. Most churches, this is one of the things I see them doing with small groups, is they get all these people to lead small groups, and they think, oh, good, it's going to go good, and we trained them. But if you don't meet with them every week and take care of them the way Jim described, they will implode. And people will say, oh, I tried those small groups, and those small groups don't work. And the last slide. Are you thinking to yourself right now, this is a big task? Is that what you're thinking? Ed was just saying he didn't think he had the time for it. He's an elder and he's being candid with himself. Do I have the time to really do this? How many relate to that, by the way? Were you going to say something about that, Jim? Yeah, I would say this, guys. We live in a system where to be an elder has meant that you're a business decider. And that's okay. I can do that. But that's not what an elder was in the the first church. And part of the reason that our churches are struggling is because we've taken the words and redefined the definitions and the terms. But we want the same results. So to be an elder, to be a pastor, it's, it's, uh, and the only difference between an elder and a pastor in the first church was uh, paid or unpaid. It's the same thing, paid or unpaid. Um, you have to go, okay, I'm going to have to be disciplined. The, the key phrase in, dis, in, in disciple is discipline. That, to be disciplined means there's some things that I could do that I'm not going to do. Disciplined in the sense of I will not get involved in things that stray me from my main focus and purpose. And secondly, uh, to do things that it'd be easy not to do. To be disciplined enough to call people that are missing to to care for those. Now, here's the deal. When, you're, when you have a regular job, one of the things that you churches need to keep in mind, when you have a regular job, you're not a, a full-time pastor. You have to organize. That's why you need more leaders. Because when you have a guy who has a regular job, you have a regular job, 
and a regular family, and he's got responsibilities, but then you, you say you're going to pastor a church of 300, how is he possibly going to do that? You're asking your people to do something that it would be impossible for them to do and to stay in balance. So then you have to go, all right, what would this system look like so that our elders could have balance? You see what I'm saying? Like uh, every one of our elders has a regular job. And we have elders meetings twice a month. That's it. And they are involved in one ministry or another, whether it's a coach or a small group leader or whatever. You cannot be an elder unless you're involved in ministry. But the size of the ministry job they're given is very important. Also, the whole model, and I don't want to really challenge this. Well, okay, listen. What are you going to do, beat me up? Uh, The model of the Church of Christ Christian Church, which is Restoration Movement, which I have come from, that, uh, that we put out there is unattainable. Unattainable. Where they're the hired guys and we're the, the, the people that work for you and you have a regular job and we have to bounce things, everything. What do we bounce off of you? What are we being hired to do? You know, just to clarify what he's talking about, he's saying, so you have a group of elders who hire somebody and then... You know, it's their, they have another job and they're not as focused and they're hiring somebody. To do a job that I can't really, let me just say to you this way. Leadership is one of the major components you need in a church. But the problem is you're not going to find real leaders that are going to bow down to a broken system that says, I can't actually lead this church because... Uh, I've got to bounce every single decision off of elders who are lay people who don't have the training, don't have the time. You see what I'm saying? That was a, I started out with that model, and as the church grew, well, it was fine when there was 50 people. When the church is 500 people and I have 100 decisions to make today, what decisions can I make and what decisions can I not? And how long do I have to wait? And how much can these guys actually be involved? They have regular lives. And we had to go through and go... Okay, the system itself is broken. A broken system cannot produce um, a growing, outstanding church. At the point in which you do not restructure the system so that it can take on the next level, that's the point in which your church will stop growing. So those are all things that... So what is the role then of the elders in, in... This system that you're talking about, because you believe that the elders are biblical. Oh, you, if, you, if you don't have elders, you're not biblical. The question is, what do the elders do? And we believe in a governance model of leadership, meaning there are seven things that have to go before the elders, and I cannot make decisions on that myself. And I know clearly what, clearly what those are. And I can function inside of that because I know what they are. And if the elders have already set precedent in some area, I know I can function within that. I don't want to make all the decisions myself. I want to have support and backing and accountability. But I need to know what those decisions are, and it needs to be feasible. Because if I have to get a call, call my elder seven times a day in his regular job, I'm going to resent him, he's going to resent me. So what can I do and what what can't I do is a good question. For me, uh, all theology in our 101 class, there can be no changes to it unless it goes through the elders. There can be no philosophical changes. 
Meaning, I can't decide we're not going to be a small groups church. All right? Can't make that decision. Budgetary items. The budget is set by the elders and overseen by the elders. All right? Um, I cannot hire or fire ministry head. That means if you're a person in our church who hires and fires, I cannot hire or fire you without going before the elders. I can, hi- I can hire or fire a secretary. I can hire or fire a youth minister. But if I cannot hire or fire an executive minister over youth ministry without the elders being in participation with that. So, Jim, are you saying that if you were in a church of, say, 200 and you had an associate who was working with yeah, you? Yeah, the first way, that first thing that I, and I'm the one who set up those guidelines, by the way, I don't think that I should be able to hire or fire a full-time pastor at that stage, my youth minister, without going before the elders. But you would hire or fire them uh, with the counsel and input Absolutely. of the elders. The so elders, you, but the elders also respect, I, I, they're not answer men, believe me, I wish they were sometimes. But, uh, or yes men, they're not yes men. But at the same time, I am one of the elders of our church. I am not hired and fired like so much cattle and told what to do. I, if, if it's about my job, they'll ask me what I think and they'll ask me to leave the room if they're talking about hiring and firing me. But other than that, the decisions of the church are made with me in the room. The major decisions of the church, because I'm one of the elders. I have to actually live it out and understand it. And the model of eldership that I see in most little churches is responsible for why they don't have leaders and how and for I don't believe in in growth barriers. I believe in leadership barriers. At the point in which you do not have the leadership to take the next step, that is the point in which your church will stall out, stall out numerically. And a lot of times the leadership barrier, especially in the Church of Christ Christian Church, is because of the way in which the eldership functions. It's just completely dysfunctional. Now, I don't know any of your churches, so I don't know how yours, your guys' work, so don't take it personal. But then again, if I did, I might go, you guys are a freak show. Not trying to make you mad, I don't know. But, you know, the truth is, it could be a mess. And that's part of the problem. It's one of the biggest uh, factors in uh, churches that are uh, evangelistically growing, reaching lost people, is that they've empowered the senior point guy to to lead. So it's staff-led, elder-guided. And Jim... Being a Canadian who's walked through these uh, waters for years with these guys, this was my single, no, it was my second biggest frustration with churches in Canada. Well, exactly I, I left. I, the reason I was done was I remember that I was in, as a youth minister. They didn't want to hire anybody, so I was in charge of seniors ministry, small groups, youth ministry, of which we had 150 in a church of 180. And uh, I remember I went to an elders meeting one night and I said, guys, I can't do this. I'm out of balance. You either have to hire somebody to help or you guys have to start calling on people and working in ministry. I mean, you can't just come to a meeting and make decisions and expect me to live out those decisions with no help. I'm sorry, I can't do it. And I'll never forget what they said, what the chairman of the elders said. Because uh, I said, I'd said, you know, I'm going to start calling you. When they call me and they're not in youth ministry, I'm going to start giving you guys the numbers to call. And they said, if you have them call me, you will be fired. We hired you to take care of that. 
It wasn't, hey, let's do this together. It was, that's what we hired you to do. We hired you, we'll fire you. And the senior pastor, I mean, you know, and, you know, I also work with the Southern Baptists, and I mean, you think our, your, the Church of Christ Christian Church model is far better than the Southern Baptist model, which is the congregation votes for the senior pastor, which means then now the kids in the back of the car vote for which parent they like. To, you know, well, I don't like our parents today because they're taking us to McDonald's instead of Burger King, so let's vote them out and get a parent that we actually like. Let the crazy kids in the back seat decide who drives the car. Now it's a popularity contest instead of I'm a leader gifted by God and given uh, the direction to lead this church to closer relationship with God. As soon as I pressure them or confront them or do whatever to do the right thing, it's like, oh, get rid of them. We're not comfortable. We don't like it. They're out of here. What a mess. So these poor guys are like just waiting for retirement. I don't want to make them mad. I mean, our, our people won't go for it. Well, you know, let me, let's go back to this for one minute here. All right? Do you guys remember the... Uh, um, do you guys remember the graph that I gave you? Now I'm going to flatline it. What's the first one? Dead. They're then born again. What's next? Infant. Then what? Child. Then what? Young adult, then what? All right. A parent is what? They're a reproducer. It's not just that they serve and care and love. They're actually reproducing people who serve and care and love. You see what I'm saying? Now, in America, 88% of the people in the church do nothing. 12% actually serve. So what would that mean for uh, how many people, where would these people be in America spiritually? How many, per, how many people, what's the percentage you think would be in America, giving those statistics, are parents? Two percent of the But you churches. can use the same numbers and say in Canada. Okay, so two percent of, of churches are growing by new conversion growth. That's only 2% of the churches are having decisions and growing at all. That's whole churches. That's not people. That's whole churches. 2% of churches are growing. 98% of churches are not growing at all. So what do you, when you look at that, how, what is the percentage of people that are parents? It's low, isn't it? What's the percentage of people that are serving? Still low. By the way, let me tell you a story about a lady. Just because a person's serving doesn't mean they're not a child. Eye-centered. A lot of people serve because it meets their own needs. I had this lady one day. I'm coming out the back after second service, and we got third service coming in, and she's just madder than hops. She's like, she's one of the ladies working behind the counter in children's ministry, and she's just mad. And, and I go, what's the matter? She goes, these women come in late, and they want to give me their kid, and I'm just trying to get them to check in. I did not sign up for this. I go, what do you, so you're serving, and, they don't, and they're late, and they don't want to check their kids in, and they're mad at you because you're keeping them out of church service, what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. So why are you here? Well, my home group, they, they talked about in our home group that we need children's ministry people to help, so I, my whole home group volunteered, and so here I am. What is she? But she's doing what? 
she's serving. Right? So you might go, well, 12, uh, 27% of our people are serving in one way or another. Therefore, we have 27% of our people as young adults. No. Because a lot of them are serving because they have reasons. Cost plus outweighs cost minus. And as soon as cost minus outweighs cost plus, in other words, they don't get patted on the back, they don't get cared for, they didn't get the right response, they didn't get the announcement turned in in time, so you didn't announce it from the pulpit and they're mad. As soon as something like that happens, they're done. I'm done. What are they? They're children, right? All right, well, I want you to think about it this way. Here's the church. I told you I'm not an artist. Here's the world, and 99% of the people that are associated with the world, that represent Jesus to the world, are either infants or children, eye-centered and ignorant. Do you know why people see Christians as hypocrites and fakes and judgmental and eye-centered brats? Because 99% of them are. Why? Because they prayed the prayer and they were not discipled past infant or child. And therefore, that is the face of Jesus to the world. And is it any wonder that they don't want that? They're already like that. And they don't have to go to church. Is this making sense to you? All right, let's uh, take a 10-minute break. We're going to start up at 4 o'clock.